I'm going to have Tim come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. So, Tim, come on up. Okay, our uh, scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father God, we thank you again for um, this time. We thank you for your word. And God, we ask as we open up your word um, to study, uh, Father, that you would shine a light on this text um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, that you would illuminate it, that we would see this uh, scripture um, rightly, um, that we would understand it rightly, that we would apply it to our lives in a way that um, changes us and makes us um, more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to do these things. Um, God, we thank you for all of your many blessings um, uh, as we as we come here today, God, we thank you for the blessings of of freedom, um, the blessings that come along with the fact that we can open this word freely um, without fear of of reprisal or or attack. Um, God, we know that those are are not light things. Um, God, that while you you um, God, you take care of your church no matter what, and that even when there is persecution, God, you are there amongst your people, um, and and you are growing them and and um, drawing them close to yourself. But God, at the same time, we are thankful um, that we have peace and that we can um, come in peace um, to worship and to um, listen together. And so we thank you for that, God. Um, God, help us to take these things um, to heart uh, and apply them to our lives. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you you may notice that we're in the same passage that we were in last week. That was not a mistake. Like uh, Tim was not up here just reading the wrong thing from last week or something. We're actually going to do the same passage twice. Um, we're just going to do it from a little bit of a different angle. And whereas last week we were mainly focusing in on the story in the center about Jesus getting left behind um, and, and staying in Jerusalem um, when, when uh, the parents had come down for Passover, we're actually going to kind of focus in on the bookends of this passage, the first couple of verses and the last couple of verses um, for this story this week. 
Um, so you guys, again, I, I mention this on a regular basis. You know that I'm a nerd, right? Um, and so I was thinking about this thing this week, okay? And so uh, Superman, you know the character Superman, right? Um, so Superman was created in like the 1930s, and for decades he had all these storylines and all these things happened. Well, in the in mid-'80s, um, DC Comics, the company that owns Superman, decided that they were going to reboot the entire comic book universe. And so what that meant was that they were going to wipe away all the storylines of the past and start over again so that you didn't have to know all that 40 or 50 or 60 years of backstory to read their stories, right? And they did that with Superman. And so Superman had a new backstory. He had all this new kind of uh, of stuff. And, and a guy named John Byrne, who's one of my favorite writer, artist, comic book guys, um, he did something kind of interesting. And, and many of you guys have seen the Christopher... Um, Reeves uh, Superman movies, right? And so if you remember, there's a scene where Superman is a, as a teenager, um, and he's like the, the towel boy, right? He's the water boy for the football team. Even though he can run, you know, faster than a speeding bullet or whatever, and he can he could probably throw the football a mile or whatever, but he has to hide all that, right? And, and he's he plays this sort of meek and nerdy and weak character to hide the fact that he really is Superman. Well, when John Byrne started writing Superman, he changed all that because he said, you know, what? That's dumb. If you were a teenage kid who had that kind of ability, do you think you would hide it? And he was like, now you wouldn't do stuff that was so crazy that people would know that you were an alien or a superhero or something, right? But at the very least, you would play up to the ability of the other kids around you. And so he wrote a story about how Superman's like the star of the football team and like, you know, he's all the girls like him and he's this, he's this cool, popular character. And anyway, so, so that story kind of, um, it, it stuck in my mind because as we come to this passage, it brings up a similar theme and that is this. What was it like for Jesus to be a teenager, okay? What kind of, what did it look like for the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, to grow up and be a kid, um, a, a, a toddler, a, a, an elementary school age kid or whatever, a, a preteen, a teenager? Like, what does that look like? So this is... The, there's something incredible about this story, very unique, and you may or may not have recognized this. This is the only place in the Bible that talks about that issue. All right? So if you look at the passage between verse 40 and 41, it jumps about 11 years. We go from Jesus' toddler infancy to about the time that he's 12 years old or something, right? Then between verse two, chapter 2, verse 52, and chapter 3, verse 1, we jump another 20 years. So we have jumped from now the time that he's 12 to roughly the time that he's about 30, okay? Um, the only time in the whole scripture that we have that talks about Jesus' childhood is right here between those verses. The Gospel of John doesn't mention it. John's Gospel begins in eternity past and then jumps directly to his baptism in the beginning of his ministry. Um, Mark does the same thing. He doesn't, he, he doesn't start with the eternity past, but he jumps straight into Jesus' baptism and then the beginning of his ministry. Matthew talks to us a little bit about his infancy, right? Hit the birth narrative. But then again, he jumps all over his, past his childhood, past his young adulthood, all the way again to his baptism and the beginning of his ministry. Luke is the only gospel writer and the only place in scripture who gives us any direct information about 
Jesus' childhood, okay? And so I think the case is, and, and it certainly has proved this way in history, that has been a curiosity to a lot of people, right? Um, people have wondered what Jesus' childhood was like, right? What do, what does the terrible twos look like if you're sinless? Okay? Um, what does it look like to go through puberty if you're the son of God? Okay? Those are, maybe you've never thought about those things. You're thinking about them now though, right? Like what, what is that, what does that even look like? Well, that curiosity is probably not surprising for us. And in fact, throughout the history of the church, it has given rise to any number of kind of false stories and myths and legends. Um, about Jesus' childhood. And these things started to arise in, in, the, in the church in the centuries after Christ's death and resurrection. And so we have these books that are called uh, the Apocrypha and, and, and different kinds of books like that. And they are these, these non-canonical books, right? They were books that were claimed to have been written by a disciple or somebody in Jesus' time, but we know that they weren't because of the distance from when they were written. So, right, so there's a Gospel of Thomas, but it wasn't written until two or three hundred years after Jesus' um, life, death, and resurrection. So obviously Thomas didn't write that gospel because he'd been dead a long time. Well, there are these couple of little books. There's one called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and then there's another one called the Syriac Infancy Narrative. And both of them tell all these crazy stories of Jesus as a baby and as a kid. And I'm going to be straight up, like most of them are bonkers. Like they are just weird stories about Jesus' childhood. Some of them are pithy. Like there are these pithy little stories about miracles that Jesus did. For example, one time Jesus was in these stories sitting, uh, playing in the mud, making little birds out of mud, out of clay, and then he and he brings them to life, and then they fly away. And you're like, oh, well, that was kind of cool. Good for you. Um, you know, um, sometimes there's another story where Joseph is doing some kind of construction on the house, and he has he needs one more board, but he doesn't have enough wood, and the piece of wood he has is too short. And so Jesus walks up and grabs the board and goes, and, and stretches it out for him supernaturally, okay? Um, so some of them are kind of these just little parlor tricks almost, it would seem like, right? Sometimes, though, Jesus seems mean, almost vindictive in the way he acts. And so, for example, there is a story where Jesus is sitting by a stream and he's gathering water into these little pools, right? Kind of, you know, like you do when you're a kid, you, you, you sort of make a little dam and then you get water in it and you've made this little pool. And then when the water's in the pool, he would speak to it and it would suddenly become fresh water. It would be clean. And that's what's happening in the story. Well, then this little bully kid comes by with a stick and walks up to Jesus' pool's and just starts busting up the little dams so that it muddies the water and and it goes back in you know to the the stream or whatever. And in the story, Jesus curses the kid and he says, "Because you have done this, you will wither." And instantly, while they're watching, this kid begins to shrivel, and and sort of shrivels up into this little um, you know sickly little kid, right? And then in the story, like the dad comes by and goes, "Hey, Joseph, your your son cursed my kid and shriveled him, or whatever. What kind of kid is that? Or what you know, weird stuff like that." There's another story where straight up this kid bumps into Jesus and doesn't say, "Excuse me," and so Jesus strikes him dead. 
Okay. Again, these bizarre stories, like the stories that if you've read the Gospels, you go, these don't sound like Jesus at all. And then maybe the creepiest of all the stories, at least in my opinion, is one where Jesus, while he is still in the manger as an infant, begins to speak like an adult and gives this eloquent theological like treatise on something or whatever as an infant laying in the manger. Okay. And I'm talking babies are creepy. Like they just are. Like it doesn't matter the context. Okay, and so there's all these weird stories that were there in the church. Now, again, none of these are in the scriptures. None of these are in the in in the documents of of the New Testament. But it shows you that the early church was wondering about these things, right? It was questioning what would it have looked like for Jesus to have been a child. It doesn't seem, though that the scriptures and the writers of the scripture really care about any of that, right? Um, Jesus' childhood doesn't seem to be very important to the gospel writers. They don't seem to think that it's something that necessarily needs to be talked about, and that's evidenced by the fact that Luke is, is the only one who even mentions it, and it is only in this little place. All the attention is focused somewhere else in the Gospels, okay? And we notice that the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, is a great example of of a picture of that. So the Gospel of Mark spends exactly zero chapters and zero verses on the first 30 years of Jesus' life. It doesn't talk about his birth, childhood, anything, right? It starts at his, when he begins his ministry. Then it uses 10 chapters to talk about the first three years of his ministry, and then six chapters to talk about the last seven days of his ministry. Okay, And so that should show us something, right? It gives you ten chapters talking about three years of teaching and six chapters talking about seven days of his passion, death, and resurrection, okay? And so it's obvious, and, and, the, and the other gospel writers have sort of similar patterns. It's obvious that what they think is most important is not what Jesus was doing when he was 13, but his, his teaching, and then even more importantly, his death and resurrection. Um, and so the gospel writers are focusing there. But then even then, that makes us ask this question. So if that's the focus, then why did Luke put this in here? Why is this one passage here? Why did Luke feel all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the need to go, you know what, I think I need to add this, this one little story in so that we can know about what Jesus was doing when he was 12 years old, okay? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, last week we talked about how this passage plays, the, the place it plays in the narrative of Luke. And what that place is, is this. It shifts the focus and the center of the story to Jesus now, right? Jesus is no longer the person that accompanies Mary and Joseph around places, right? Um, he is now the center of the story. And we talked about that whole kind of idea of Jesus being the center of our own lives. And are our lives coming into orbit around Jesus or are we sort of... T- dragging Jesus along and wondering why he keeps on getting lost along the way. And so that's part of what's going on in this passage. But I think there's some other stuff that we can learn through it, right? We can look at some practical kind of aspects of this passage. um, And and I think those are included in why Luke gives them to us, okay? And so what I want to look at is kind of maybe one practical thing and one theological thing and then maybe one pastoral thing um, or something that we could talk about um, as we go through the passage, okay? So the first thing is this, this idea of, of, of a practical teaching that we bring out of this passage, and it is this, is that we get an opportunity to see the way Jesus was raised. 
Okay, we get an opportunity to to see the way the Old Testament passage train up a child in the way they should go is played out in the life of the Messiah. So starting in verse 39, it says this, it says, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Okay? So we learn a number of things right there in that passage. Number one, we learn that, that Jesus has two devout parents. Okay? They are parents who perform everything according to the law of the Lord. Right? They don't live in such a way that they're sort of going, um, just, just kind of living casually for the Lord, as is often the case in the Old Testament. Right? We see all kinds of characters who seem to be only following God Kinda, okay? But that's not the case. They are devout and follow, do everything according to the word of the Lord. They go down to the Passover feast every single year. And like again, we talked about last week, it was not even required that women should go down um, to the Passover feast. They could, but men were the only ones who were required to go down. And yet it says here that Mary would go down uh, with them also, right? So that's, that's, that's a big hassle, right? I mean, to get out and to walk this three or four day journey and to have to live there for a while and leave all the stuff you got at home behind. This is a, this is a function of their devotion. Jesus' parents were modeling a life of faith to their son Jesus, okay? They were living out their personal faith before their children. And so what I would say is this, at the very least, we see a picture of the idea that we as parents are supposed to make an effort, make a practice of living out our faith before our our children and living out our faith in such a way that we make the things of faith a priority to our families. And so that could be church attendance or it could be letting our kids see us read the word and study the word and pray. It could be service and, 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 and giving our kids examples of the fact that we go out and serve our community uh, around us. But any number of those things, right? Ways that we can show that this is not just an added on piece to our lives, right? Again, going back to last week's service, as parents, we are showing our kids, hey, my life is in orbit around Jesus now. Jesus is the center of my life, and I want to live in such a way that shows that, okay? And so what is, again, the Old Testament tells us, train up your child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think the case is, too, that sometimes, as parents, we can be a little nervous in certain contexts about that whole endeavor, right? We can be nervous about forcing our kids, our faith onto our kids sometimes, right? Um, we can be nervous if we're in a situation where our kids maybe don't seem to have any interest in the faith, the balance between what, how, how, do, we, how do we encourage them into these things, how do we expect these things of them, and then at the same time not force the situation or whatever, because we're worried. We are worried that in some way we will push them too hard and they will get burned out or they'll rebel and they'll, and they'll walk away um, from, from the faith or something like that. But, but I want to point out something to you. There's an opposite consequence, too, if we don't. When we don't um, push our kids a little bit in these things, that laxity may give them the impression that Jesus and, and faith are just not that big a deal. They're not that important in, in our lives. They're, they're sort of a side thing that you can have or not have. And so I think there are dangers both ways. And obviously we rely on God's grace in all of these things, right? We are, we are prayerfully seeking after God in everything, hoping that our efforts will be um, received the way that we intend them, okay? But, but I think there is still the reality of this, is that if we believe these things are true, 
right? If you actually believe Jesus is real, if you actually believe that um, what the Bible teaches about him is accurate fact reality, then we have to push our kids into those things, right? We have to present those things to our families in, in an expectant kind of way. The same way you do with math, okay? Math is a fact, right? Um, you believe that math is an accurate depiction of, of reality or whatever, right? But you don't ever look to your kids and go, you know what, I want them to come to a knowledge of math on their own. Right. I don't want to push math on them. I just want them to accept math if that's what they want to accept. OK, nobody talks that way. You go, no, this is math. Like you got to believe it. OK, well, if you believe the same thing about the Bible, if you believe the same thing about who Jesus is, then there needs to be at least a certain kind of, of, of energy and urgency along with that to say these aren't options. OK, this is the way things are. And I want you to believe them. Now, obviously, again, Every single individual has to make a personal acceptance of these things, right? You can't, you, the, the, the kids can't be, they can't borrow their parents' faith ultimately. And yet at the same time, we need to let them see the importance of those things. And so I would say set an example of devotion for your kids, just like Mary and Joseph did. Encourage and expect your kids to do the things of the faith that the family is involved in. Okay, and so that's there's there's one side of that that this is a practical picture for the parents, but young people, um, it worked out really well that you're in here this this week. Okay, there's a practical side for you guys too. Okay, there's a message for you about how to act in this passage too. Because here's the deal, young people who are roughly in the age that Jesus was, let's say 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, you're in that kind of range. Okay, you are at a pivotal time in your life and in your development and in your growth. So here's a question for you. Why do you think this was the time that Jesus stayed behind when they went down for the Passover? The passage just told us that they went down to the Passover every single year. And apparently Jesus managed to go back with his parents and not get lost every other time. But this time Jesus stayed. This time, Jesus intentionally went to the temple and stayed there and was about his father's business. And the question I'm asking you is, why do you think that was? Why was it when he was at this age, probably somewhere around the age of 12, that he stayed behind at the temple? Well, we mentioned a little bit of it last week when we talked about the idea that the age of 12 was significant in the Jewish culture because that was the time that a young man stepped across that line from childhood into adulthood in the community. And so at that bar mitzvah um, uh, ceremony, right, you would be now considered a full-fledged member of the community and that you were responsible for the law. Okay, I think that's, if I'm, I may be mistaken, but I think that's right. Bar mitzvah actually means son of the law, essentially. It means you are now a child of the law. You're responsible for it. The things that the law requires, you are now responsible for, okay? And so that was around this age of 12. And so I think what's going on is Jesus is sticking behind as a young person because this is the time in his life when you start being expected to take personal responsibility for the things of faith. And I think even though we don't maybe necessarily have a bar mitzvah kind of of, of ceremony or, or mentality... The same thing is true of you guys in your, at your age. 
Okay, when you hit that 11, 12, 13 year old kind of of mark, you begin to come to a point where you are going to be more and more personally responsible for your faith. And that's partially because of the way God has designed your minds to work. All of a sudden, your brain starts clicking in new ways that it wasn't doing before. Right. It starts to be able to think abstractly. It starts to be able to see things outside of just black and white categories and sort of start to integrate all these different aspects in your head. Um, and God's designed us that way to this to be a critical time in the development of your faith. Because again, at this time, you start to change in different ways. You start to take on an identity that is separated from your parents somewhat. Okay. And that's not an overnight process. Like you're not like 11 and then you're like, I'm 12. I'm my own person now. Mom and dad get out of my life. That's not how it happens. Right. But there's a process that begins there where you start thinking more and more for yourself. You start thinking more and more about what you believe, not just what you've been taught, but what you you actually believe. You start searching the scriptures on your own and understanding these things on a personal level. You decide who you want to be during this time, right? That's part of the reason why we have all this goofiness going on around identity and gender and all these crazy things going on in our culture right now, because we keep on having situations where we are allowing 11-year-olds to be told how and who they should be by people who have none of their interests at heart. Somebody in another city, in another place in the world who is just talking about things and, and speaking into people's lives and they have no connection to them and, they, and they're filling their heads full of all kinds of craziness, right? Um, kids try on personalities. Like some of you guys in here, the Pfeiffers, you guys have worked with me in, in student ministry at different times. In, in, I've known youth-aged kids, middle school-aged kids, who within about a three- to four-month period would change their personalities about four or five times, right? This kid will come to the church, and he's like, I'm a goth. Like, I got black hair and piercings, and, like, I'm listening to death metal and whatever. And then, like, two weeks later, he'll come back, and now he's a skater kid. And you're like, oh, okay, well, he's lightened up a little bit, and he's got some spiky hair, and he's riding a skateboard. And then two weeks later, he comes in, and now all of a sudden, he's like a country kid. He's got these big, like, barnyard boots, and he's wearing camo and, like, a cutoff and a Carhartt jacket and then two more weeks go by and now he's all preppy he's wearing like a polo and 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 those high striped socks and whatever i don't know what kids wear these days but anyway um and so and but it, it changes like and and what is that what's going on there well exactly what we're talking about they're he's they're trying on personalities right they're trying on to see what is it that's going to stick here okay that's part of the normal process of being in that age range okay but it's it's interesting to notice how jesus deals with that Okay, I think Jesus is sort of in, again, a way that we don't quite completely understand going through the same kind of thing. And so what does Jesus do in this moment? Jesus stays behind at the temple. And then what does the passage tell us? Verse 46, it says, after three days, they found him in the temple. And what was he doing? He was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them. He was asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he was answering them, okay? So he was sitting among the teachers. What does that mean? He was taking opportunity to learn from those who were a little further down the track than, than he was, okay? Um, he was listening, right? He was paying attention during, during times when they had the opportunity to learn. He's looking. He's listening for truth. 
and trying to understand it. He's asking questions. When something pops up and he doesn't understand how these things fit together or how they work, what does he do? He asks questions about them. He wants to investigate these things and, and make sure he understands them properly. And then he's engaged in it. He gives answers back. As things are told to him and discussions are had, he is engaged in the process and speaking back into them, right? Man, I tell you, as a, as a youth teacher, the worst thing is a silent class, right? When you go in and you just teach and they're just like, and you're like, you get it? And they're like, everybody okay? You know, and nobody says anything, right? That's the worst because you have no idea what's going on. It's like, are they scared to say something? Um, you know, is there some kind of gas leak and they're all unconscious? Like, what's, I don't, we have no idea what's going on. They respond, right? Jesus is responding. Jesus speaks back and is engaged in this process of learning, okay? And so we notice that Jesus, man, he loves the Word of God. And he is growing in the Word of God. And again, how that all plays together, we're going to talk about a little more in just a second, but it's hard to understand. But Jesus is growing in his knowledge of, of the Word uh, and, and what God has for him. So, so part of it, again, is, is practical, right? It's looking at parenting and being a kid in the context of, of, of the faith. But I think there's other stuff going on here too, right? For one, we learn a little bit of a theological principle. We learn about Jesus' humanity in this passage, his real, that he is a real human person. So we've already talked about this weeks back. I can't remember, maybe even months back now. Um, we talked about the idea that Jesus is, we have a special, fancy, impress your friends, theological name for it, right? It's called the hypostatic union. And that means that Jesus is 100% man and he is 100% God. And it's not 200%, that's just 100%, okay? That he is fully man and fully God in one person, not two different people. In one person, he is fully God and fully man. And it can be hard for us to grasp that. In fact, ultimately, there's a sense in which we can't grasp it. Um, but we notice that throughout history, there is this pull to try to make Jesus less of one or the other, okay? He is either less human or less divine. Um, but it's hard for us to hold in, in at the same time that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. But this passage kind of gives us a little bit of clarity about Jesus and in his incarnation, his hypostatic union, right? Um, God is omniscient. He knows everything, and yet there is something that has happened in the incarnation in which Jesus has limited himself. Somehow he has bracketed off that all-knowing nature to the point now that he can learn, that he can grow in wisdom. Whereas ordinarily we would say God can't grow in wisdom. God knows everything already. He, he can't get any more knowledge than he already has. And yet Jesus can somehow. Philippians 2, again, gives us a little bit of a hint at it. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And, and so, again, how all these things play together exactly is, is a hard thing for us to understand. But, but this limiting himself, this emptying himself of his all-knowingness is something that we see Jesus doing. And it's confirmed in other places. Jesus doesn't know when the end of the world is going to happen. Or at least he says he doesn't when he is on earth in the flesh. He says, I don't know when the time of the end is coming. Only the Father knows when the time of the end is. And you say, man, how is that possible? How can Jesus not know everything? And the answer is because somehow it's tied into his humanity. That Jesus is in many ways just like you and I in the way that he grew and learned and grew, and, and, and grew in the grace and knowledge of God. 
If Jesus is 100% God, right, we would think he would be all-knowing, but that's not what we see. In Jesus, his, in his humanity, in the emptying of himself, Jesus learns like we do. And yet, obviously, he has a special connection and a special perception that is recognized by these teachers there at the temple. And so there's kind of like a double emphasis there, right? Like Jesus is somebody unique, and that at the same time, Jesus is just like us. He's just like any kid, and yet he's not just like any kid. And that honestly is sort of what leads us into this third point, not the, not the practical, not the theological, but something more like a pastoral idea. And we'll kind of close with this thought. Jesus is not just our example in how we should, we should learn and, and grow, but Jesus is our sympathetic high priest in these things. So in the book of Hebrews, it says this, for we do not have a high priest talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Okay. And so what that's telling us is this, is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. He went through everything that we've gone through, okay? And that's very important because, and that's, I think, part of the reason why we are shown this little glimpse of Jesus as a teenager, okay? Because, again, these are weird ideas to to think about, but Jesus had to deal with hormones, all right? Jesus went through puberty. Jesus struggled with sexual temptation that comes especially in, in those teenage years with, with all the different influences coming in on us. Okay? Jesus dealt with the insecurity of, of being a young person. He dealt with identity and who he was and, and what his place was in the community. I'll bet Jesus was bullied. At some point. And he had to deal with the indignity and the shame that comes along with that process. He probably felt like nobody understood him. In fact, you would wonder if Jesus didn't feel more like that than most people do. Jesus had to weigh doing things that the crowd was doing to be accepted versus doing what was right and recognizing that that was going to mean he didn't fit in with people, okay? Jesus has done all of the things that especially young people deal with on a regular basis, right? He's been through all those things. Jesus has grown up the way every other person in the world grows up. Because he had to, because he has to grow up the way we grew up. Because if Jesus is going to be a perfect high priest, if he's going to be a sympathetic high priest, he has to have dealt with things the same way we have dealt with, right? There can't be a situation in which we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you don't know what it was like to be a teenager, right? Because you magically appeared when you were 30 years old on the scene or whatever. That's not what happened. Jesus had a childhood like the rest of us. And so, young people, when you go through those things, when you struggle with those things, Jesus can truly say to you, I have been there also. I've suffered these temptations too, and yet there is a way for you to remain faithful, And I can tell you that for sure because I did it. Because Jesus remained faithful even in those situations. And it may be difficult, right? You may end up being an outsider in some ways because of of your faithfulness. And yet Jesus is our example and he is our sympathetic high priest who knows our situation and has chosen to follow God even in the midst of temptation. 
And you know what? Truthfully, that's not just for teenagers, right? That's not just for teenagers. That's for all of us because um, it never ends. Those things don't stop. We continue to have to deal with those things. And so we continue to have to grow in, in knowledge and in maturity and coming to a full knowledge of the faith. We have to find our own place in the kingdom through all these things, right? And so if you're new to the faith, if you're just a new believer, you're probably going to feel like a teenager sometimes. Like you're going to look around and go, man, everybody seems like they understand better than me. Everybody seems like they've got it together. Everybody seems like this all makes sense to them. And I'm just starting out. And, man, I'm 30 or I'm 40 or I'm 50 years old and I should be a lot further down the track and everybody else my age is, but I'm not. But guess what? We learn the same way Jesus did. We grow, we start from where we're at, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to the study of the Word of God, there's going to be all kinds of uncertainty, all kinds of questions that come along with that. But again, it may sound weird, but Jesus was new to the faith as well at one point. Jesus had to keep learning. Jesus had to keep asking questions. Jesus had to keep engaging and growing. And so, um, maybe the case is, is that we would have liked to have known all those stories about what Jesus did when he was 8 and 10 and 12 and 16, right? Um, John, the Gospel of John says that if, if it were all the stories about Jesus were recorded, all the books of the world wouldn't be enough to, to handle all the stories, right? That's probably a little bit of hyperbole. Um, but the reality is, is man, I'm sure all kinds of things happened when Jesus was a teenager. I'm sure all kinds of interesting things happened and God used him and things happen in all kinds of interesting ways. Like we've already read these stories where Mary is noticing these strange occurrences that happen around Jesus. And it says she is treasuring these things up in her heart, right? She notices that God is doing something different and she treasures these, these things up in her heart, her hearts. And so Maybe we would go, man, I really wish God had told us a few more of those stories, but he didn't. He said, those aren't things that you need to know particularly. What you do need to know about Jesus' childhood, you find in this one little passage that we are to follow his example, that we are to understand his incarnation more truly and more rightly, and that we are supposed to experience the care and the sympathy that we have in Jesus Christ because he is a faithful and sympathetic high priest to us. All right. And so that's what we see in this passage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. And just, um, you know, I, there's, there's lots of things that we could pray about uh, in this time. But I would specifically encourage you to pray for parents and pray for young people. Okay? Um, pray that we would live lives um, as parents modeling the faith to our children. Um, showing them the value and the importance that um, we believe is there, right? The significance of these things, right? And then for young people, pray that um, in this world that has so many influences, so much junk, so many voices pulling for their attention, um, that they would push aside all that stuff and focus in on, on the teacher, Jesus, to listen to him teach, to sit at his feet, um, to receive and to ask questions and to engage and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's go to the Lord and, and, and take some time in prayer and do that now. Father God, we need your mercy in these things. Um, we as parents need your mercy as we um, attempt to, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God, we recognize that every single day we mess up, 
There are any number of ways that we present to our children a wrong picture of, of who you are and, and your love and your grace and your gospel. God, we ask your, your mercy in all these things. God, we pray for our children's hearts, um, that they would know you truly, um, that they would uh, grow in, in knowledge of you, God, that they would pursue lives of faith and of virtue and of passion and of calling God, that they would know that, that you have a, a special um, plan for their lives, um, that they are um, loved and that they are welcomed. God, that you have sent your own son to die for them and that you want to use them in incredible ways. God, we pray for parents and we pray for those children hearing that. We pray for our sons and daughters. We pray that in this world that is full of junk and wickedness uh, and lies and falsehood, God, um, that you would keep them um, in your grace, um, They that they would... God, receive these things rightly in an easy way. God, we know that sometimes... Um, God, people go the long way around. They have to make mistakes um, before they can realize the truth, God. But I pray for my kids and I pray for everybody's kids in here, God, that that would not be the case for them, um, that they would not take the long way around, God, that they would run to you um, directly, that they would um, flee from the heartache and the tragedy that follows a life that is lived apart from you, God, and that it wouldn't take them 10 or 20 or 30 years to, to figure it out and to wake up and to come to you. Um, God, but that they would seek you as children, that they would seek you as young adults, that they would seek you just like Jesus did um, as a 12-year-old sitting in that temple, um, seeking after you in everything they do, knowing that you are there to be found um, for those who seek. God, we pray for both of these. Um, we pray for parents. We pray for um, children. God, we pray for our own lives. We are all pilgrims. We are all children on this, in this process. We are all growing and continuing um, to progress um, God, and the things that you have called us to. And so we just ask for your help and your mercy as we, as we journey that road. Uh, Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.